Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Um, as always, I am Vic, um, and I am so happy to be here with uh, Chris Pavlock. Thank you, man, so much for coming in today. Great to be here. Oh, yeah, this is awesome. An in-studio uh, interview for once. That's right. So uh, yeah, so the audio uh, for you folks hopefully will be fantabulous throughout this thing as long as i can keep my voice down and not have it echo too much through your microphone but hey man thank you so much uh for being here so um chris is the author of the book from lawyer to warrior um and it sort of the uh, subtitle is failing the bar becoming a marine and finding meaning and and we're not talking about failing at the bar which is what some uh, many Marines are very familiar with. <laughs> right, We're yes. talking about the bar exam um, to uh, be a, become an attorney. So, and we're going to dive real deep into this book, but just sort of the you know from the fifty thousand foot level, um, Chris, you were a, a law student uh-huh. and uh, took the bar mm-hmm. twice. Yep, became a ground intelligence officer, uh, then. Left the Marine Corps, came back into the reserves, yep. and now you are working on cyber and all things mostly science fiction, uh, as far as I'm concerned, right? Yeah, mostly, uh, you got everything right, except the last part is not cyber, but uh, artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah, yeah, see, for me, yeah. that's cyber. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for clarifying. No worries. No um, worries. Yeah, so why don't, yeah. can you tell us a little bit? I know, like again, we're going to just dive you know, both feet into this book, but... Um, can you tell us a little bit about like kind of what you're doing now, um, and then some of the things that uh, you know sort of give us that that really that you know that high view of you know who you are. And sure. Yeah. So uh, what I do now, I'm I've found myself at the intersection of I'd say operations, uh, policy, emerging tech, and the law and the law, right? Or you could maybe even say, um, and that might be the policy side of things like Intel. So. I'm kind of at the intersection of those four, the confluence of those four streams of of work, really. Um, and, you know, I wrote the book uh, as, and we can get into this a little bit later on, but I wrote the book as like a therapeutic reason to help make sense of things. And I don't want to disparage the practice of law by any means, because I might be reaping the benefits of having a law degree that I wouldn't, I wouldn't get my foot in the door mm-hmm. otherwise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's given me some bona fides to be at the table to discuss, you know, national policy, or uh, national security, or how are we going to do these things ethically uh, and and uh, within the right bounds of governance and things like that. So, yeah, I'm exploring and I'm working on, you know, how are organizations managing the their the responsible um, the responsible aspects of AI, the trustworthy aspects of AI, and what does that mean for an ecosystem, right? And what does that mean for the 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 data, the custody of the data, uh, how you manage the data? Do you you have to cleanse it and sanitize it because it, AI is one of those things that's it, it's re- reliant all on on data. Right? Yeah. So however clean or dirty the data is is going to be how well or poorly the AI ML model works yeah. and spits out what you want, right? Um, and so I'm I'm in that world and I didn't expect to be in that world. I'm of a philosophy major by by yeah. undergrad training and uh, me too, studying. man. Yeah. So okay, yeah, yeah. So here we are. I, I, I'm fascinated by these ideas from from I think from a societal perspective mm-hmm. and from a you know who we are as human beings and how are we integrating these these technologies into our society. Yeah. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent, right? And so I've been able to kind of immerse myself, like I said, at that intersection of how these things play play together yeah yeah specifically i think from you know and then this is the marine corps background is you know the military perspective mm-hmm. um and if i think if i could hone even further in in the next few years to be at that place where ai is integrated into isr platforms yep. and or weapon systems yeah yeah, yeah. now in, in you know using your law degree i mean are we talking about sort of ethical applications as well as yeah practical right i think both okay. i mean because they're kind of go hand in glove right and you have to and this is where again i I'm, I'm unique because i can talk from the perspective of being a rifle platoon commander or a sniper platoon commander and what those marines on the ground need or would like or right. want right. from their platforms who are supporting them right but then from a legal perspective or policy perspective i can kind of see at the thirty thousand foot view 
hey, these are the things that are going to hamstring us. And they usually pr primarily reside in the authorities that are granted, mm. right? Title 10 authorities versus Title 50 or right. other, other kinds of authorities that are governing these practices. So, uh, yeah, I can kind of, I guess I'm just unique because I can kind of go from the, the tactical level uh, and then immediately up to the 50,000-foot view and, and kind of write about all the things along the way. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, be of value and, and help people understand, okay, what do we mean by doing this um, within the bounds of the law? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then what do we mean by doing this within the bounds of ethics? Uh, are those two things different? If they are, how are they different? Yeah. Um, and what do, we, what do we think about them as an organization when we adopt these technologies? Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, and like, especially how, you know, looking at your book, uh, I mean, your career has sort of straddled the Title X and Title 50 stuff. I mean, since you, you know, basically left IOC. Yeah, yeah, it has. Totally. So this is, yeah. this is yeah, yeah, this is totally hand in glove, man. Yeah. So, well, that's really, that's really fascinating. You know, when I, uh, I we were talking a little, little bit in the pre-show, but it's like, dude, when it comes to, like, AI, like, my mind, like, immediately goes, like, Skynet. You know, it's right. like, all right, so yeah. when do we get judgment day? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and many people do. And and this is one thing that, I mean, I've had to do a lot of reading and just a, a lot of studying on these things and understand, okay, what's in the realm of the possible right now? And what do people want to do? Uh, and most people, uh, most organizations, they want to be able to apply these models to a business case, mm -hmm. right? We're not going to get into the doomsday machines, Uh Speaking of like the Marine Corps, you know, I think what the, the best way to, to to get some good traction is get some base hits on the business side, the accounting side, maybe some when it comes to vehicle maintenance, okay, helicopter maintenance, et cetera. Get some base hits that way, demonstrate its value and or fail fast and figure out how to do it correctly. And then that should that should spawn some good some good wins. Mm -hmm. And then you can demonstrate its value to more importantly the operators. And then, you know, generals talk to generals, right? So mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. general's going to talk about, well, listen, we have this great ML model that's applying to this problem set. It might be able to do the similar thing or a similar technology could do similar things for you on the operational side. Yeah. The difference is, and this is where the crux of the ethics comes in, it's one thing to trust an AI model on, on an accounting sheet, mm -hmm. a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to trust it when you're in a COC and you, you're being told that this is a high-valued individual and how do you trust this this surveillance technology that's that's telling you this, right? Right, right. If it's an AL, AI ML model that's telling you this, how do you trust it? Um, and that's where, you know, as a rifle platoon commander, I trust my Marines. And as a sniper platoon commander, I wasn't there uh, on in the hide with them. They're they're talking to me from miles away. Mm -hmm. I had to trust them and know that all the training we've worked on is is helping them understand the, the situation as best as possible to convey that that situation on the ground yeah. as best they can. It's different now when it comes to machines doing that because I wasn't there developing the technology, right? right? I wasn't there to to determine how these things are being created. Right, like, I mean, think, I think of, like, loitering munitions. Right. For example, it's like, well, I mean, the things it's going to do, give it, it's going to operate within the parameters that you give it. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you sort of don't, label that as sort of a you know no-go terrain thing on your map right and you start having f you know where's the blue on blue start to occur if you have a loitering munition that's stayed on station longer i guess than you anticipated or right. whatever right right so and it's just getting that again getting those that trust developed mm -hmm. um at the tactical level with with these technologies yeah a little bit by little bit yeah yeah well that's that's fascinating especially considering like I'm pretty sure that my Alexa and my Roomba are plotting on us. So I'm just <laughs> They probably are. Yeah. 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 Like careful what you say out loud. They're yeah. listening. Um Yeah. Well, dude, let's uh let's dive into your book, man, because this was like such a great um exploration and I, I hate to be uh sort of flip it when we start talking about failure. Um, but failure was I guess the first um, domino to fall in your path of resiliency mm -hmm. and of, yeah. um, you know, really sort of forging your steel, yeah. uh, it, you know, sort of the, the, the gauntlet of fire sort of, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here, but, um, so from lawyer to warrior, uh, what 
start? Like, what was the impetus? What was the genesis of the? Why, why did you want to write a memoir? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I began writing this, I'd say, probably in 2000 and uh, I'd say 14 or 15, right? Um, and really what it was was a therapeutic process for me. It was a therapeutic exercise to help me make sense of things. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've heard your other podcasts too and why, why people write and why people journal. And I think there's a real wisdom to it that I've, I've learned from. And, you know, when, when you're dealing with things like this and a, a setback that you just can't explain and a setback that you just cannot make sense of, you work so hard mm -hmm. to do what you're trying to do and to, to see the results through. Um, and when you don't meet those results, you're like, what is wrong with me? Like, mm -hmm. what, am I doing something wrong? Is there something wrong with the cosmos? Is there like, right, why right. is this not working? And Because and, this isn't a case of you like, well, I sat on the couch eating potato no. chips and playing Halo <laughs> right. all day. I don't no. know why I'm not, exactly. why is this not happening? Yeah. Like you were like really busting your ass. Busting right? my ass. Yeah. I mean, an analogy would be like, if you tell me, okay, it's, it's New Year's and you have a New Year's resolution. I want to lose 30 pounds by June 30th. Like, okay, Vic, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm running, I'm going to the gym, I'm watching what I eat, I'm getting a good rest. Like, okay, cool. But then in 30, on 30 June, you come back to me and say, Chris, I, I actually gained weight, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, like, well, not the good yeah, kind. Not, all, not the, <laughs> all, my, all my friends, they're losing weight. All my friends have done what they want to do. Like, what's wrong with this picture? Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And it's, it was that kind of odd, like, like what is wrong with 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 the reality I think I'm living in because it's no longer the case where hard work pays off. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was trying to make sense of. And the reason I think writing is so essential for these kinds of things is because you are, you're dealing with such complex thoughts and feelings that you need writing to help yourself think, mm. right? It's, it only helps you, you make sense of things in that way because you can talk about it with friends. You can, you can ruminate about it by yourself, right? You can have a podcast if you want. But until you put pen to paper, yeah. it's forcing you to, to go logically from sentence to sentence to make sure like you're, you're making sense of things. And then you revisit it a week later, like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. Or uh, where can I really probe and expand in some of those ideas? And it began, like I said, as a therapeutic process for me to make sense of of failures, because all told, I failed the bar exam four times, right? I've never passed it. And it, I'm like, what is what is going on mm -hmm, here? So mm -hmm. I had to just really think about it and, and consider, um, okay, how can I make sense of this? Where have I come? What have I learned from it, right? And then what, in this in this case, how has the Marine Corps been instrumental helping me overcome these, these kind of, these insurmountable hurdles so yeah, to speak yeah right? yeah no that's it's fascinating and you're not the first uh but it, oh, it, it no matter how many times i hear it I, i'm just fascinated by the idea that like even talking about something doesn't have the same impact as writing it down no, like there's right. something about that neural pathway from your brain to your hand that one i guess provides physical distance mm -hmm. which allows you to separate from it and really take stock of what it is but there's something about working almost like working with clay like you're really massaging right. your thoughts yes you're yeah. really you're coming up with like a, a, a you're really working within a narrative space yeah vice just you know sit hanging out with some of your buds just you yeah. know shooting the breeze yeah i can't remember who said it, it might have been someone like thomas jefferson said you know if you want to if you want to you can think about something. Uh, you can, uh, first off, if you want to know something, you read it. If you want to remember it, you speak it. But if you want to learn it under and understand, you have to write it. Yeah. Right. And that's that's kind of how it was because I could, again, I could kind of cry my beer all day long. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't going to make sense of this. Yeah. Because, like you said, it wasn't just like I was sitting on the couch, you know, and then maybe, maybe go glance at the, the, the study material. Right. I was like, Working hard for for number one for three years in law school, right, and then um, and then the two months after that, up through July of twenty or two thousand six, right. Yeah. So Which that's putting, another job. It's another job, yeah. right? And and then this gets back to another thing I talk about in the introduction. In the introduction was, um, you know, when you anyone this goes for anybody when you pursue something with that kind of steadfast diligence. Mm -hmm. uh, and you basically are sacrificing something time now for results in the future, an ethic emerges. And that ethic is, 
I'm going to reap the benefits of what I want and a vision of yourself kind of takes shape in the distant future. Mm -hmm. And you see yourself out there and it, it's kind of blurry, kind of fuzzy, some outlines, but the more you work and the more you, you're diligent and the more you keep you know, running your three miles every day, the more you keep eating well, right? You see the vision of the self that you want. Right, right. And then when that doesn't happen, right, that what's, that's what turns on its head, this whole notion of like the say the universe reality is not responding to the things I thought were going like, to get me through. Right, right? right. It just doesn't seem to work. And so that's why I said the, some of these things were so complex and wrapped up in a lot of, a lot of emotion wrapped up in a lot of ego, you mm -hmm. know, and my mm -hmm. part that I had to really make sense of and writing was the only way to do it. And that's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, as a, you know, aspiring writer myself, like I, I can totally appreciate this. So, I mean, so as, so did, did you ever like, envision yourself i know obviously law was a, like a uh, obviously that that sort of carrot that got dangled for you know much of your your youth mm -hmm. um and then there was the marine corps was there ever thought of like i i'll, I'll be an author or like or did after you wrote the book like <laughs> holy geez i'm an author now no. well I, that might happen for everyone that opens that that advanced copy from your publisher it was surreal like this has happened in december right and i got the the 50 advanced copies and it it was surreal, but no. I mean, if you would have told me back in 2006 when I was in, in a bad state of mind, I'll be honest, when I was in a bad state of mind after failing the bar exam, you said, oh, don't worry, Chris, you're going to write a book about this one day. You're going to be on a podcast. I would have punched you in the face. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, like, like, are you out of your mind? Like, yeah. I was just not in that place mm -hmm. to, uh, to even think about it as, as far as, okay, what can I glean from this? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's – I'm kind of staggered myself when I think about I, I wrote yeah. a book about this, but um, it was just the natural progression of things. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and so what was the process like then? I mean, for, considering you weren't an aspiring author, yeah. you didn't have sort of that – you didn't envision that for yourself. Like what was yeah. it like? I think pretty daunting? Or? It was sort of daunting, yeah. I, I didn't go into it with thinking I'm going to write a book. I went into it thinking I'm trying to help myself. Mm -hmm. And as I – put pen to paper. And I think I mentioned this in the very end of my acknowledgments. What I wrote first, in fact, was the impact of graduating from Infantry Officer Course 3 TAC 08. Uh, now, in context, I had failed the bar exam 2006 and 7 back to back. I joined the Marine Corps in June of 2007. A year later, I'm graduating from Infantry Officer Course, like the, 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 the pinnacle of my experience. It was mm -hmm. the most proud moment of my life. So here, I'd kind of gone from the, the nadir of my life, 2006-7, and now I'm on the summit. Yeah. And it was just, I, I was like just putting pen to paper on that one day of graduation and how meaningful it was. Yeah. And I, like how far I had come and what I learned. And as I gave that to some friends, they said, this is really good. Uh, you should, you know, think about expanding this. I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. I kind of kept thinking, well, maybe there is something here. But I guess first and foremost, people say, you know, you're your own first audience. Yeah. Right? It was like, I'm going to do this to help make sense of things for myself. And I can't really say, Vic, when I, I said I'm going to, this is going to turn into a book. It just became a narrative that I thought, maybe I can help others. Because yeah. when I failed, I, I didn't find a book. I didn't find a podcast. There was nothing I could, like, latch onto to help me make sense of this. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't as if I needed, like, hey, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's, yeah. like, the last thing I needed. Right. It was, like, I needed someone who's been there, who's made it through this, and has come out the other side um, because it was just this, I was really kind of at this at wit's end without yeah. any answers. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I mean, this memoir is most assuredly not a, you know, so there I was sort no. of story. <laughs> and it's most assuredly not a self-help book. Um, you talk, you know, one of the, the enduring themes of this, of your story is that there's this really interesting and i think it's interesting because it's such a stark contrast between sort of marine corps esprit de corps you know it's all about you know like leonidas right it's all about the guy you know the man or woman on your left and your right yeah vice sort of the culture that you really started off in which mm -hmm. 
in many ways, and I think you articulate this very well in the book, is the antithesis of that. Yeah. It's extremely self-serving. It's extremely isolating. Yeah. Um, and it's like, if you're not going to do this, no one's going to do it, or mm-hmm. someone else is going to do it for you. Yes. So you talk yeah. a little bit about that. I mean, yeah. The title of that chapter is uh, is called Schadenfreude, and um, I've until just until recently, I thought that word um, – has meant literally meant uh, uh, shadow joy. It really means harm joy, right? And a very closely a cognate of Schadenfreude is is um, Schadenfreude, which I don't want to get into the, the German language, but <laughs> there's a very they're very closely related, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. it means harm joy or shadow joy. And what that is is we've all felt it um, when when you are competing with somebody or when you're going against somebody for something. Their detriment is your benefit, right? And in fact, I want you to fail. I want you to slip up and whatever you're doing. I want you to make a mistake so then I can come out ahead, right? And it's it's kind of sad, but when you when you peel back the onion on law school, that is that is the environment of law school. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one of my first weeks in uh, when I was a one L, and uh, I'm sitting there in the library. It's kind of late, and um, this this uh, girl who's sitting across the library it, she's like hey you know do you want to just go get a drink next door i'm like yeah sure she, she ended up being the the valedictorian of our class and she was the one who introduced me to this idea and you know i didn't think about it much at the time i'm like oh it's interesting but then as time went on i realized no this is exactly what this environment is like and it's unfortunate because there the entire apparatus of law school is such where you and i are in competition for for the same grades. We, we, we can't all get an A in this class. And yeah. that's by design. Yeah. Right? And that makes things incredibly competitive. Yeah. For all the wrong reasons. It's not like, you know, you're competing against another squad on the O course and everyone's going to win and they just have a good time and, and enjoy it and we're all working together to, to go, get through this. It's like, no, I'm putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into my education. I need a job after this. And it the legal environment is is such that the only thing law firms can do is compare GPAs against one another. Yeah. And it's like whoever has a higher GPA from the better school is probably going to get the job. And so that just breeds um, a very, very nasty competition. And uh, like you were talking about in the book, I mean, in certain areas, especially in, in you know, megatropolises like we have in the U.S., I mean, yeah. it's a saturated market. Absolutely. And so yeah. every every G, every point matters on even every exam. And there aren't many exams in law school. Like it's all one final cumulative exam mm-hmm. at the end of a semester for that subject. So constitutional law, there's no tests or quizzes until the very last final exam. Criminal law, same thing, right? And so all I all of my effort is in for that one exam. Um, and so I better do well. Yeah. And once once those grades are then cemented in place, now I'm in this whatever strata wherever I fall, right? And it's really difficult to to take yourself out of that and, and jump up to a higher GPA as compared to everybody else because sure. everyone else is just as working right. just as hard as you are, right? Right. Um, and at the bottom line is like that's why I I called it that title was because it's just uh it I didn't really see any any positives in this when it came to the the nature of the competition in law school. So what was that like for you? I know you're, you're, you're talking to uh, your classmate who ends up being valedictorian, who's recognizing sort of this, uh, I hate to call it toxic. My wife is an attorney, but an attorney who left law. So yeah, I guess yeah. I can't right. tell it toxic. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it, there is this unhealthy mm-hmm. sense of competition yeah. um, that is bred into you or pounded into you from such an early start. So you're you're recognizing this thing, but yet it's not deterring you. It's not, no one's, it's not change. There's no cultural change. Everyone's just very willing to sort of take a bite of the shit sandwich Mm -hmm. because is it because of what's on the other side of it? Or um, is it just sort of an acceptance of this is just the way things are as you you know, I think it's it's probably the latter and I don't want to, I'm not the single mouthpiece for law students, right? I think there are, some of my classmates probably loved law school and they enjoyed it and they thrived and, and, you know, good on them. Uh, that doesn't mean they weren't susceptible to and beholden to the same, right. the same kind of apparatus, right? Mm-hmm. That just was part of the, part of the, uh, the game. 
Um, yeah, when you to thrive in the game, yeah, you got to play right. the game, and, right? And I think some of those people who, who do well, they're truly maybe destined to be lawyers, right? Um, but you ask, you know, what was their motives? Maybe it was what's on the other side, right? Or perhaps uh, they thought, you know, I'll just I'll do this and I'll be done with it. Um, well, now, did you feel that tug and did you feel that tug and pull within you? Because one of the things you you mentioned in your book is how it you know has significant impact on your soul. Yeah, you know, I, clearly a philosophy guy. Yeah, but yeah. That, for me, that that resonates. Right. Um, well, I'll tell you this: it's because I think I went. Well, I, I admit it. In the, in the very beginning, I mean, I went to law school for all the wrong reasons. I went to law school for financial ascendancy and to live, um, you know, uh, white picket fence, in, mm-hmm. you know, in a beautiful suburb. And it was I was fixated on that kind of goal without really thinking about is number one, is this really good for me? Uh, is this what I ought to be doing? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was I was kind of chasing this whole this whole idea of what I thought I wanted. And um and I guess I just, you know, I, I kind of put up with it. I just, I just kind of put up with it and, and said, you know what, this is, this is how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things. But when, when you go to law school for those reasons and then, and then you meet with failure, right, it, that's when I think it really kind of hit me because I had, I had been kind of just worried about all this external validation in law school and I'd been worried about what, what are my grades – how am I competing against others? How am I performing against my peers? Am I going to get this job I want? Mm-hmm. Fixated on the on on the financial goals, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have to get this job because I want to make X number, hundred thousand, whatever a year. Um, when all of that is kind of pulled out from underneath you in the form of failure, that's when you realize, like, wow, this this three year environment has really done a number on me. This this comparing myself to others, this schadenfreude has really done a number on me, and I don't really know how I'm going to bottom out on this. Yeah, because it just kind of felt like this, this, um, this pit that I'm like, I gotta, I gotta find a way out of this because I just kept thinking round and round on how uh, I, I'm, humi- I'm a humiliating failure. I'm, uh, I'm worthless. I'm, uh, I'm not amounting to who I thought I was going to be. And I'm never going to get that that pie in the sky job now. That's yeah. and so that's really what happened when I, uh, w- you know, that was kind of the reckoning, so to speak. Like, if you don't take care of your soul in those kinds of environments, when the shit hits the fan in the form of failure, watch out because yeah. it's going to get dark real fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, speaking of darkness, I mean, we've had some guests on the show that have talked about you know, you know, really low points. Um, you know. Casey Tellison's book, Freaks of a Feather, is based off, you know, started as a suicide letter to his family. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that there's actually a significant number of law students who commit suicide uh, from yeah. f- after having failed the bar. Yeah, and I, I, um, I dedicated the book to one of them. Um, I, I don't go into those stories. I didn't really want to do sidebars that way sure. in the book. And I also wanted to remain, you know, keep the things anonymous just for sake of privacy. Uh, and respect for those families, but yeah, in, in some of the research I was doing, you just type it in, type it into Google, like yeah, bar exam failure and uh, suicide, and they're there, and it, they're sad stories, because, and this is where, again, as a therapeutic process for myself, I thought, you know, maybe if I could put a narrative together on on how instrumental the Marine Corps has been to me to help me get out of this, maybe this could help somebody else in the future. Like yeah. Maybe this could be of service to others who. Doesn't have to be failing the bar exam. It could be failing anything significant. Like again, when the ethic takes over and you think things are going to work out the way they do, and then everything kind of just crumbles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what are you left with, right? And you, what you want the most is meaning. And I'm sure what those students that failed wanted the most was some kind of meaning. Like they were, and apparently, again, the research I did, they were well liked, popular right. law students who loved law school. Like they had every reason to succeed and every reason to go forward and and do well. I was, I mean, like I said, I was kind of jaded and not that thrilled about it. But, um, yeah, that, that's what made their story even more tragic because these were well-liked, popular people who, um, who really didn't know what to do when they were faced with such catastrophic failure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot um, for all of us to sort of unpack there, especially when we're talking about meaning because we put, especially in this sort of like modern context where – you know, we're all 
short on time, yeah. short on resources. Your calendar fills up quick. We put so much meaning mm-hmm. or at least a perception of meaning into things, external sort of validations or yeah. affirmations. Right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, fuck, man, when that goes away. Yeah. What do you got? Right, exactly. When all these things that have been kind of suspending you in this in this state for three years, um, and I think I, I didn't really ask my friends that did pass, but they they were susceptible to. It. I think we're all susceptible to it in law school and other environments when it's really cutthroat like that. But when you pass the bar exam, okay, you like take a deep breath, move on, and you know just keep charging forward. But like I said, when you can't move on. And you're just grabbing at anything that's that's worthy, anything that's kind of worthwhile, that's going to really fulfill you mm-hmm. in those in those dark moments. And you realize that you surround yourself with feelings and emotions, and and even people that haven't reinforced those kinds of things right. that aren't nurturing your soul. That's where you have to be careful. But in, in it's like I got to imagine that it's not even the absence of that validation, but it's a reinforcement of the exact opposite. Exactly. Yeah. The validation is like, yeah, you aren't good enough. Chris. Right. You can't practice <laughs> yeah. law. And yeah. Yeah. You, you are, uh, you're not a good enough, uh, attorney or you're not an attorney at all. Right. And that's the, wow. Yeah. Like that's the stark validation you're getting. Like you're not good enough. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. only imagine. Um, so on the, but conversely, Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about significant impacts to the soul, perseverance mm-hmm. through yeah. those times. Let's talk a little bit yeah. about that. Obviously, I mean that this is the centerpiece of your story. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I every time I failed the bar exam four times, right? I've took I took it 2006, seven, 2010, and then 2013, and each time I failed, it kind of rocked my life to its core, uh, and. I had to find a way to pick up the pieces and just move forward. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like uh, because that's what you're not you, – you, no one pla- plans for that. Like mm-hmm. No one no one has a vision right. of themselves. Like, okay, well, I have this secondary COA in case I fail. Right, like, that's right. not an option, right? right? You don't think about that. Well, then, I mean, I can't imagine going to law school that you have even the time <laughs> no, to start right. coming with alternate no. supplementary and, no, you fighting <laughs> positions, right? <laughs> not, not at all. And like, it's certainly not something you want to entertain because it, it's, such a, it's such a staggering setback. You're like, fuck, there's, if I have to do this over again, no way. Yeah. And again, back on one of those people who did commit suicide, he was about to embark on his third attempt. Mm. And just, just a few days after he began studying for his third attempt, like, he, can't he, do it. he did, I don't want to do Man. it. So. Yeah, I had to find something that was going to help me continue to progress. And one of my messages in my book is what I learned and what, what has kind of made sense to me and what I realized helped me get through it was, you know, a, an active mind doesn't have time to be depressed. And I don't want to say that flippantly because we can all suffer through things that are hard and harder for some than others. But an act, an engaged mind, be, being active in something, pursuing something, um, you don't have time to to be depressed or feel sorry for yourself. And that, for me, it took the Marine Corps, like going to OCS and just being focused on graduating OCS, and then focused on doing as well as I could. And uh, and even then, I mentioned there were times when I'm like, this is not working out at OCS either, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but I was harboring some things I had brought in from law school that some of that mentality I'd been br- I brought those with me which had to be extinguished. Otherwise, I was going to fail out of OCS. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, focus on something productive. Focus on something that you can, you can, uh, you know, give yourself, in a way, like, stop thinking about yourself. Give yourself over to something else for the time being. And that, hopefully, will recalibrate, like, where your priorities are and what you find important. And you realize, wow, okay, yeah, this, this was devastating, but I, could, I can re-vector and attack in this position and, and go in this direction, um, and then hopefully you can derive meaning from from that next that next uh, waypoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. In in like, um, there's such an. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of folks in the books, uh, people that you went to uh, TBS with, IOC with, who you really felt like 
uh, you know, for lack of a better term, really, really had their shit together. Yeah. People yeah. that, you know, you know, they're peers, but you're still turning to them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Your roommate was yeah. one of them. Yeah. Uh, the SoCal guy uh-huh. uh, at, uh, at yeah. just that laid back yeah. sort of demeanor, but was, you know, really amazing in the field that is really, uh, you know, yeah. level head on his shoulders. Um, so th- I guess there's this sort of uh, idea, though, that like, well, of course they're doing well. Uh-huh. Is there any feeling within yourself of like, is it, it, I guess, when you take the, the, when you juxtapose sort of the law school culture versus the Marine Corps culture, it seems to me that the, the Marine Corps, the, the v- law school culture would say, you're not just going to emulate that guy. That's your competition. That's the dude you're going to have to beat yeah, or the, right. the lady that you're going to have to beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Marine Corps culture seems to be more like rally around this person. Absolutely. If you become like them, great, but then also pay it forward. Yes. So, Abe, like, yeah. you talk a little bit about how those two are in conversation? Yeah, with each I think other? so. I mean, that's where, you know, um, that, uh, that competition in law school is real. And you see someone out there, and because that person is going to be a great candidate for a job that you might want, and you're like, okay, the stark reality is they're probably going to get it. I'm not, right? Um, and th- yeah we've discussed the competition uh, and the competitive nature of law school, but in the Marine Corps, like you, 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 th- you really want to be around that. You thrive around it. You see these people who are personifying these great traits in the Marine Corps. You're like, wow, I really want to, you know, be like you when I grow up, or I really want to just hang out with you because I'm learning so many good things. And you can learn many different things from different people in the Marine Corps. You can learn about just a chill attitude. You can learn about field craft. You can learn about planning. You can learn about, you know, the spiritual aspects of being a Marine, all these wonderful things that you can get from different people mm-hmm. in, in your career. And no one is there to to outwork you or outdo you. It's like, hey, a rising tide raises all ships. Yeah. We're all in this together, right? Yeah. And that's, I think, where esprit de corps is really the antithesis of, of schadenfreude, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, like, I'm not going to I don't. I don't want you to fail. We're like, we're all in this together, and we have to work as a team. And, and that's where... Uh, again, not an indictment on the practice of law, but many lawyers prefer to work alone, mm. right? I think, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think many lawyers prefer to work alone. They, uh, they're territorial about their, their work product, and some are damn good, and some need to be like, hey, lay off, back off, right. I'm doing this. Uh, but, you know, when, you are, when you're in a fighting hole with another Marine or you're in the defense and it's miserable, and you're like, you don't want to be by yourself. Yeah, and yeah, and that's what that's what cements you together. That's what bonds you together. It's like we're in this together in this shitty, dangerous circumstance. And if you know, you can trust me to to keep you safe and I can trust you to keep me safe. Uh, and that's uh, that is what I think the Marine Corps breeds. And that's why we join. That's the things that yeah. we, we like about it. That's what it's a place where we can all challenge each other. But no one's a loser in the in the in the bargain, you know. Right, right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I w- when I was a company commander, we had a really sort of dispersed uh, AO, um, and so I mean, my platoons were out like in the hinterlands, you know, right. alone and I would say unafraid <laughs> was what they'll tell you unafraid, but yeah. I'll tell you, the motherfuckers afraid, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and rightfully so. Yeah. Um, but it, sort of along those lines, of like, well. You know, which the platoons obviously were competing with one another mm-hmm. for that, but within that sort of umbrella of esprit de corps. And I just remember yeah. the hilarious stuff. So we had these uh, thing, these things where you could sort of send a telegram mm-hmm. through, uh, you know, whatever the the Marine Corps uh, community service or whoever was doing our sort of quality of life infrastructure. You could sell, yeah. s- send out these. Uh, sort of these text messages. It's meant to, to relay stuff back home. You could quickly get a you know quick little thing back yeah. home and vice versa. But these two lieutenants were doing it to each other. <laughs> yeah. And so there would be like, you know, one guy would find a cache, blow it up, and then next thing, like the next day, the other guy would be getting this little this little telegram saying like, did you hear that sucker? That was us. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and then vice versa. Like, yeah. hey, did you, we, yeah. you know, anyways, it was hilarious. And so there is that, I mean, because clearly the Marine Corps is a competitive organization. Absolutely, right. But it's so different than yeah. this, like, like 
it, isolationists would be completely discouraged. Right. I mean, or, and what, weeded uh, out is what you talk about that's OCS. What, yeah. That's what you do at OCS. Like we have to weed out the individual, right? And there's a reason for that because the ego ego is going to get people killed. It, uh, the bottom line is ego gets people killed, right? And I don't want to speak romantically about it, but that's what can happen if someone's self-interested mm-hmm. and not going to look after what they have to do or not going to stand post the way they need to stand post, et cetera, right? Um, and so, yeah, it has to be like just uh, – just weeded out yeah uh, as as well as possible yeah. and, and one of the things you do in your book that I thought was really uh, really great and you know having uh, obviously worn the uniform myself um, it was interesting to experience or to re-experience my career mm-hmm. through sort of the way that you uh, and not in a uh, in a overly simplistic way, but you really break down sort of the process for both becoming an attorney and for becoming a Marine really like a deep, not not a painstaking detail, but in a way that it seems accessible. Yeah. Uh, So I I really did appreciate that about um, the, the book. And so as we're talking about that cultural shift, like could you walk some of our listeners through what that was like, like, so first off, you're an older candidate. Yeah, I was. Um, I didn't. I didn't go to OCS till I was 28. Yeah. Everyone asked me if I was a prior. I'm like, no. Why does he? Why do people keep keep asking me if I'm a prior? <laughs> right. And then, then I realized why. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, for a for you know, 21, 22 yeah. year old, a 28 year old at OCS like, is what like, what the here? hell? Yeah. Um, yeah. But also too, like you've had. Like you're longer in the tooth from an experience, and because we're talking about perseverance, yeah. Many of the having been, you know, a young candidate myself, man, I I didn't know really what perseverance yeah. was. And so, right. what was that like for you then? Uh, you know, yeah. going through that maturation process. Good question. I think there are two examples, and I I would say the first one when it came to OCS, um, I wasn't, uh, you know, OCS is challenging. I think for everybody that goes through it, right. Um, I wasn't like intimidated necessarily by the challenge. What what hamstrung me though were this residual attitudes of of law school. Like I'm going to do this myself. I'm not going to really rely on my 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 squad mates or my fire teammates. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of do what I got to do. I'm not going to help somebody out if they need help. And that that came back to bite me because I'm like I just I was I became kind of self-centered. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, and so that had to be extinguished and it had to be eradicated. Otherwise, I wasn't going to make it through through OCS. Um, and I mentioned in the book, there was this really embarrassing time when I was at a, um, inspection arms and that's really what rattled me about halfway through. And I really had to like recalibrate how I was, my attitude in, in OCS. Um, so I was, I wasn't so, uh, I, I think I'm like, okay, I have to make it through this because I have no alternatives. Yeah. Like I have no, I'm at the end of my rope here. I got to make it through this. But in TBS, uh, it was a tactical decision game where, and I mentioned this too, where, you know, part of, part of becoming a lawyer is getting as many facts as you can, right? F- like being fastidious about it, like going into w- detail, right. like all the facts you can get, like line item by line item in a, in a document, and then taking your time to get that information so you can make the best informed decision possible. You can inform your client as well as possible. But in the Marine Corps, you don't have that kind of time. Right. So the tactical decision game was for a 15-minute window, uh, the, the, uh, the senior enlisted instructor was saying, giving us like a sit rep. And at, at our own choosing, once we thought we had enough information, we could then leave the, leave the group and go begin planning our frago. And uh, I, still having, you know, thinking like a lawyer i'm like i gotta wait for all the information to, to get to me i gotta take it all in and, and eventually what happened was when the the senior enlisted instructor had kind of gotten to the end of their substantive comments they started making shit up and like okay now i can go well by now i like two and yeah. a half minutes left to plan my frago nothing right yeah, nothing yeah. and so who do they call on hey lieutenant pavlak what's what's your plan i had nothing because i was fixated on absorbing as much knowledge as i could wasn't comfortable with the 70% solution, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's where, when I really distill some of the things down about like what's cultivated in law school. And I mean, we want our attorneys to be like, wait, that's not a disparaging remark against right, attorneys. Right. Like we want our attorneys to know their shit and to have every single thing uncovered. The Marine Corps doesn't have time for that, right? right? You don't have time when you're taking contact to understand all the complexities of what's going on. You have to be decisive. 
So I had to kind of unlearn some things that law school had really um, galvanized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And so you go, uh, so yeah, we've talked OCS, TBS. You then go to uh, ground intelligence officers course. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, you're now you're a fleet marine, two That's five, right. two five. Yeah, nice. Yeah, um, yeah. There's something going on with our programming. We have all these fifth marine guys coming oh, on. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, and, and and you know, having uh, you know been attached to RCT five two, it's mm-hmm. like it, it's in the blood. You know, maybe it's yeah. it's uh, something I'm not. I haven't co- totally <laughs> dialed in on myself yet, but. Yeah. Um, there's so much, I guess, quick transition. You'd mentioned, you know, you started the writing process because you went from like this extremely low point to, you know, one of the most filling things that you've ever done in your entire life. Mm-hmm. Now you're in the fleet. Now you're living it. Yeah. So yeah. what was that like now? Because most ground intelligence officers, for our listeners who don't know, show up as in the Intel shop, the they S2. Do. That's right. Either yeah. as the S2 or the S2 Alpha. Exactly. The Deuce. The Deuce, yeah. You yep. find yourself as a platoon commander. Yeah, yeah. My uh, battalion commander, uh, he said he loved the ground intel guys. He just loved the ground intel community. He had come from a recon community. Um, and so I show up not really knowing, you know, what to expect. Um, the whole thing was kind of surreal, and uh, he – because I'm at fifth Marines for all the fifth Marine listeners, like they put the French forager on your left shoulder and, you know, he said, let's make it official. So, and, and we just got to know each other. We had a conversation in, in one of his offices. And, uh, I told him a little bit about myself, where I'd come from and what my, a little bit of my story. And, uh, he's like, well, there's a, uh, there's a vacancy down at, uh, echo company. We, you know, and they had just come back from a, a Mew in Jordan and so he's like, there's going to be a vacancy down at first platoon. Do you think you want it? I'm like, sure. Yes, sir. I'll take it. And that was how it happened. I mean, it was just, I, I got extremely lucky that, um, that, uh, there was a vacancy coming up and he thought I would be the right fit for it. So I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity because yeah, I mean, you know, the normal pipeline for ground intel is you go to infantry officer course so you can become fluent in those kinds of tactics and understand what a battalion commander is thinking about Mm -hmm. but really it's like okay how can you inform his situational awareness about an enemy's most likely or most dangerous course of action and that's why you have to be fluent in those infantry tactics but you're really not going to be able to be a rifle platoon commander that's that's a rarity yeah but sure enough that's what happened so i uh i find myself at at, uh, echo company first platoon um, and that really, I think it's one of those things where I, I guess, and again, putting meaning to these things and trying to make sense of it all is exactly what I needed in the sense of like where I'd come from and the mindsets I had been harboring for so long mm-hmm. really had to just dissolve. They, there's really no place for those things in a rifle platoon at all, especially as a platoon commander. Like there is no place for selfishness. There is no place for, for woe is me, right? right? You have to be. A, a good example, a good leader. People are looking to you all the time for your example and and your leadership, and so you have to really overcome all the things that you would you might be harboring and just get rid of them. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know that's and I think there's something to with that. I mean, you know, I, I think probably a lot of prior enlisted guys uh, sort of embody this as well but you having just that that more life life experience and that you you have persevered through tremendous uh failure mm-hmm. um th- crippling to some yeah uh, and yet here you are um you know as a platoon commander you eventually take over a st- scout sniper platoon yeah uh, a state platoon and so i think that there's a facet there where um you're able to, and even maybe you weren't doing it consciously, but you're still able to uh, apply those lessons and, and, and have that humility. Yeah. To understand yeah. that that transformation I, has occurred. I even. think I think there were a couple of things. I was wise enough to know. Say wise. Like I was. I was smart enough to know. Okay. Um, I guess this goes from life experience because, like I said, I was 28, 29 years old um, when I when I'm taking over the rifle platoon, and so I'm I'm. I'm as old as the, the 
the company commander almost, right? Yeah. Mine, yeah. Have, mine have to be a prior, so he was a bit older, but I'm almost as old as the company commander. At TBS, I was older than my SPC, <laughs> yeah. right? But, uh, yeah, there was this, I guess, this sense of like, okay, I know enough to be dangerous here, mm-hmm. but I know what I don't know, and I'm going to have to like rest on the experience of my senior enlisted and my squad leaders. Yeah. I have to. like, And we had been warned enough many times at TBS and IOC, like these gung-ho lieutenants who think they're the, the second coming of Patton, and they say, I got this, and they come up with this grand plan, but things fall apart at first. You know, something happens and things fall apart, and they they stubbornly will adhere to their plan despite things just going yeah. sideways. And I'm like, okay, I know enough to know, like, I have Marines here who have been to Iraq, who have been to Afghanistan. Why would I not leverage that experience, yeah. right? I mean, that just goes like, I, I guess I thought it was second nature, mm-hmm. but I realized, no, like maybe that was my maturity coming through. Where, like I have to just leverage the experience that's in front of me. Uh, I'd be stupid not to. Yeah. yeah. I think too, like having persevered, there's definitely also that, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you don't grab the hot pot. Because I grabbed the hot pot, I got burned. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah. same thing. Like, I'm going into this really um, uncertain situation. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you said, m- my new default setting, where I'm making a conscious decision, or not is to fall back onto those who have that experience level. And yeah. you know, the conversation you had with your platoon sergeant, I thought was really profound. Where you said, like, look, we all get the hierarchy here. Yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing yeah. from your book, but yeah. it's like. I will be the one making the decisions, but you guys have a lot to do with that decision Absolutely, that I'm about yeah. to make. I, that's what I told him. I yeah. said, and I don't know if he was surprised that here's this lieutenant who's actually deferring to his experience for the, I don't know if it was the first time, but I'm like, listen, yeah, all decisions stop with me because that's how this is, or that's how we work. Yeah. But I, those decisions are going to be like 90% informed by you and the three squad leaders. Like you guys have been doing this for ten years. Yeah, I, I just showed up last week. Who am I? Right. Who am I? Right. Yeah. And and yeah, TBS. Still figure out which yeah, gate to go. Exactly. Through. <laughs> yeah. TBS and IOC are wonderful schools, but like, there's no replacement for real world experience. It's certainly no replacement for combat, mm-hmm. right? Where these men had been coming from. So of course, I'm going to levy or leverage what you have yeah. have garnered over the last decade of experience, and yeah. You guys inform me about what you how you read the tea leaves, and and if if I disagree, I'm going to tell you, and we're, we're going to go with my decision. But if you can be give me a defensible reason as to why we're doing this, absolutely, we're going to do this because that's why you guys are here. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then too, like um, it also, I mean, it, it it speaks so much to where you started and then where you were at the time because when these guys decide to, uh, it's not lat move, but to, to shift over to support 3-5's deployment, yeah, yeah, yeah. they come to you yeah, rather than yeah, just yeah. submit the paperwork and then, hey, adios, muchachos. Right. I mean, they were, they were uh, they didn't really need my permission, but right. they just did it out of, I think, out of respect and just letting me know. And, um, yeah, the, by now I had the snipers, and uh, they came to me. Um, there was about, there was, like, how many were there? Like, I think six of them from the whole, we we didn't have a. We only had like 24 Marines in the sniper platoon, and then now six of them are about to go. So now I'm down to 18, right? Mm-hmm. But I I couldn't really tell them no, right? Um, and they wanted to get in the fight in Afghanistan, and I'm like, yeah, I'll do. Re- you know, like give you guys props. This is this is fantastic. I can't I can't stop you. Um, and uh, you know, thankfully my my chief scout stuck around, uh, the platoon sergeant stuck around, and we were able to. Uh, have a few sniper screeners to get a few more guys in the platoon, but, but yeah, um, it was. But you've you've fostered that sort of that cooperation, and again, going yeah. into that esprit de corps versus vice uh, Scheidenfreude. Yeah, like. I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope I hope I hope I cultivated that, yeah. and um, and then you know, one of the uh, I was in the um, this is a bit of a sidebar, but when I was in the sniper office uh, one day, Sergeant Tawny comes in, um, and he told me that. You know, he was working hard with this platoon over in uh, at 3-5. Because uh, at 5th Marines, it's all in the same, you know, the one battalion headquarters is not far from the other. So yeah, yeah. It was totally. all pretty close. Um, and he just wanted to come by and say hi. I hadn't seen him in months, right? Because I had given over the given the rifle platoon over to a new lieutenant when I, we were still in Okinawa. I take over snipers in, in Okinawa. And now we're back at Camp Pendleton. And this is probably April now. We mm-hmm. 
basically took over snipers in December. So four, five months later, I'm in the sniper office and in comes Sergeant Tawny just catching up, wants to, uh, wants to pass word that, uh, that his wife was pregnant and he was looking forward to his, uh, his deployment. Yeah. So I, I hope I cultivated, um, some good camaraderie there yeah uh, and among among my platoon sergeant and my squad leaders and maybe i mean all, all the other marines that were there as well uh but yeah so uh, who knows right yeah who knows? well yeah. i mean it, that that's definitely seems to to be uh i mean for marines to do things they don't have to do yeah that says a lot about <laughs> you because <laughs> there's a lot of other things marines would rather be doing so yeah um so then I guess fast forward then, uh, you come to your end of obligated service. Mm -hmm. You decide to stay in the SoCal area. Yeah. Um, and you just talk us through, you know, more, it's a bit, it's, it's a tumultuous transition. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I didn't include in there uh, was uh, a deployment I took to, uh, to Africa. So okay. we were on the 31st Mew as a rifle platoon. At the end of it is when I take over snipers. Right. When we come back uh, just before our... Uh, our post-deployment leave, at our, our actually post-deployment libo brief, our battalion commander announces, hey, we're going back to Okinawa, back to the 31st Mew in a year's time. And that's when we had this massive migration yeah. out of 2-5 into 3-5 because Marines are like, fuck this. Yeah. I, I want to go to, I want to get in the fight. And um, and so I, uh, an, uh, an IA billet came down to 5th Marines to go to Africa. And so I took it. And so I go to Africa from july of 2010 until january of 2011 and yeah i decided to get out and uh through through some friends a mutual friend uh that from minnesota introduced me to a family in los angeles and uh that family had decided they were or the father and son of that family were going to do um a startup kind of gather a few different friends and and, and experts and we're going to go pursue this startup and e-commerce and uh, and social networking, kind of a, a confluence of both those things. Well, they wanted because I'm because I could write well and because I could I, I had a legal background. They're like we want you to write the business plan for this, and so I throw all my eggs in one basket. I actually turned down a job, a real paying job. I turned it down to go pursue this, um, and I was really naive. Um, I. I, you know, speak about maturity, right? Like mm -hmm. I probably should have been a bit more mature as I entered that whole that whole equation mm -hmm. because I was so naive about how fast we're going to get in, you know, either angel investing or some working capital, which never which never came, right? Um, and so as this this startup kind of goes all different directions except the right direction, um, which took about eighteen months to to kind of unfold, uh, I realized okay, this is not going to work out, and by now. Like I had, I had zero money. Mm -hmm. um, I like was literally, literally zero yeah. money. It's not as if I had like five grand in the bank or ten grand in the bank. I wasn't going to touch. Right. I, I had zero money, uh, and I took a job. Thankfully, again through um, through some friends, I got a job working at the W Hotel in Hollywood as a security guard. Like I'm holding doors, and I'm I'm you know just making sure people are safe and just being that guy in the corner with the uh, with the earpiece in and you know doing yeah. that and. It was terribly unfulfilling. It was terribly like humiliating uh, because here I'm like, okay, I have a law degree. I'm a Marine officer. I've done some good things in the Marine Corps. I'm proud of, and I am, I'm holding doors for these these 20 year old, you know, partiers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was another humbling experience. Uh, but I had to do something. Uh, again, hopefully, and this goes. I'm not going to lie because. There were aspects of that financial ascendancy that I had wanted way back in law school. They kind of crept in again because mm. here I am in the upper echelons of Hollywood. Yeah, I'm, I'm hanging out with movie stars and music producers and musicians. I'm like, of course, like this is destined to work. This must work, right? Yeah. Like, it's here, just I'm, back. I'm, I'm back. I'm back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and I and now I have like this. You could call it, I guess, this this get rich quick thing that maybe is actually going to work because I'm now again in the upper firmament of of Hollywood as if it's just going to happen as a matter of course, right. which was not our stupid, you know, naive belief. But that's what I thought. And it's hard to walk away from these meetings when you're starstruck. You're hanging out with these movie stars. You're kind of starstruck with meeting them. That The fact that you're there almost gives credence to the fact that this is going to work, mm. right? Even yeah. though it's just as far removed from actually happening. It just kind of – it blurs you to what's reality. Right, right. right? And, uh, and, yeah, so when, when this all didn't work out, 
um, I had, you know, basically lost about 18 months of, of time, right, in L.A., kind of going all these different directions, working at the W. I took the bar exam a fourth time, which, again, empty-handed, didn't... California I, bar. California too, bar exam, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't pass. And so, yet, yet again now, I'm kind of, like, looking at my life. I'm like, now what, right? Now what do I do? Because I thought, I mean, I, I can't... I can't go back to the, the experiences of a rifle platoon commander. Like, those were great, but now those are gone. Those are over. Um, what do I do now? And uh, I've, uh, this goes back to the Esprit de Corps of the Marine Corps. Um, uh, a, a friend of mine that I had reconnected with just before I got out, we c- reconnected at a, at a friend's uh, homecoming party, and he was getting out as well. And so he and I kept in touch while I'm in L.A., he took a job as a, I believe, as a medical device salesperson in Southern California. And just through our conversations and keeping in touch, he realized that I had not, you know, this, this whole thing had not gone as planned. Um, so he's like, look, man, move out of L.A., get out of L.A. It's, you just got to clear your head. And uh, I have a house in San Juan Capistrano. My cousin's there. He lives in one side. There's a bedroom and a bathroom on the other side just don't, I don't want any money. Just go there and live to to get yourself situated again. Right, right. And it was it was a huge gesture of sort of, of palate cleanse exactly. yourself. Yeah. And you know, I I could have never. I don't know how else I would have gotten out of that environment to really kind of recalibrate and then move forward. Had that had he not you know been that yeah. generous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was huge. And so I was able to then clear my head, go to I moved south to Orange County, um, and hang out there to to find out like what's my next plan going to be or what am I going to do next and that's when I called my the XO uh, from Echo Company uh, we were still in touch and he had moved out east uh, working with uh, with Marfor Cyber and so I said hey can is there anything I can do there I mean anything that needs to be done can you put in a good word for me and and you know slowly over that summertime you know things materialized and I was able to get a mobilization with uh, with Marfor Cyber yeah that's awesome yeah Dude, I really appreciate you, the, you being so generous with your time. I did want to just touch on a, a one, maybe two things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as we're talking about s- sort of, you know, obviously perseverance and success through failure uh, is, is, you know, reoccurs. You had a couple of, um, you had this metaphor I thought that was really profound, but you talked about your avatar, Oh yeah, yeah, and sort of, um, it's only you know through a transformation of your interior life then that you start to discover meaning. We've talked about you know significant significant impacts on the soul, mm-hmm. but yet at the same time, like you were mentioning when you were in LA, these things started to creep back in. So could you yeah. sort of like help unpack for us that this idea of you have your avatar yeah but then you have this other thing and, and it's it's more than just like oh jiminy cricket on my shoulder yeah, right 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 yeah yeah totally it's uh i don't really know when when this avatar was created it's something that i've i realized again putting pen to paper as i wrote about this that i kind of realized what this thing was and i think it goes back to that ethic the avatar for you would have been okay vic rubel six months hence 20 pounds lighter Okay, now you have an avatar, and you're, he is, he is, you know, going out, running this fast. He's lifting this much weight, and he looks like this in the mirror. All these things, right? So you have this vision, and the more you feed that idea, the more real it becomes, so to speak, right? And so I had created this avatar of, of myself, practicing law, in some, uh, in New York or San Francisco, making a half million dollars a year, living in some high rise, right, and then buying a house in the suburbs somewhere. And the thing is, is that. The problem with the avatar was like, number one, it's it's a completely fictitious thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but um, nothing that uh, nothing that I did in real life would ever amount to my imagination, uh, you know, creating mm. my avatar. So the avatar kept moving the goal. It, right? Yeah, it was a standard that you could not live it, up to. Precisely. So it was this unreachable standard that I kept comparing myself to, right? So I talk about a success narrative versus an excellence narrative. Yes. And, you know, I think we can all, and I say success narrative is usually retrospective, external, you know, you look back in your life comparing your, your, your achievements to others' achievements, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. that's a negative kind of a thing. It can leave you, you know, empty handed, but be careful because I was comparing 
myself to my avatar. Right. right. And like my avatar was always more successful than I was, right? Because I created him and he was just this imaginative thing. It's such an interesting thing because obviously you created him so that's an internally internal internally generated stressors. Yeah. Right. But it's completely it it only takes form in the external. Exactly. Right. Like yeah. Own, like there's nothing from the inside that that validates that. No, it's, all of its validation, but yet it's cre- yeah. created it's, from inside of you. It was you. kind of a weird meta. Weird, moment. yeah, yeah. it's very and, meta. And it was one of those things where I'm like, yeah, what is? Because I was already, you know, you can already kind of be saturated with all the comparisons in your life to, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Sure. But the real danger comes in when the Jones is inside your head, and you're like, why can't I? You know, and again, it came down to why can't I pass this damn test? Mm. Because my avatar did, who's living, you know, a high life right, in right, New York, right. right? And and that's where I just really had to be careful with that and extinguish that. But again, when you're when you get exposure to things like the upper echelons of Hollywood, right? All those feelings kind of creep back. You're like, well, maybe this is possible. Maybe my avatar really, yeah. Maybe there is something to be said about this. This is actually something I can achieve, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I and. So the contrary to the success narrative is the excellence narrative, which is, you know, the excellence narrative is is don't think about things external to you. Think about things that are internal and, and compare yourself not to somebody else. Compare yourself to what your, what your potential is, right? And who you were yesterday and who you are today and who you might be tomorrow that's how you base excellence or how you mm-hmm. should measure excellence, right? Because you're always going to come up short on the success narrative. It's just going to, you're yeah. always going to be frustrated that way. And, and doesn't the excellence narrative sort of fit also more neatly into the esprit de corps and like really appreciating and cultivating those to your left and your right? Absolutely. Vice putting it all on your own shoulders like, man, I did this, right. baby. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and just, yeah, everyone, everyone's trying to achieve the goal together. And uh, and work together to to achieve that common that common goal that common end state. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, it hopefully reverberates across the across the team, right? Mm-hmm, that everyone's mm-hmm. working on this together, and yeah. we're all in this together, and we're going to help each other out pursuing these things and yeah. and achieving these goals. Yeah, and it's not this sort of transactional, like, well, I need this guy for this or this gal or this person for this time being, so I can get to this next thing. It's like you said, well, let's all just do it together. Right. Exactly. And, and I need you. You need me. Right. And yeah, exactly. And that's this again, the, the simple uh, distilled down. There is this individual individuality that's kind of cultivated in law school and in the legal practice, not disparaging attorneys. Mm-hmm, I'm just saying mm-hmm. like, there is this individuality that really kind of carries the day. But that does not work in the Marine Corps. It, it can't work because you're not going to say you're not going to have one person you know, go, go repel the enemy. Like you're going right. to have a, a squad, you're going to have a platoon, you're going to have a whole, your whole battalion doing it's these things It's nested together. within a campaign. Exactly, right. That has, it's working yeah. Working together and cooperating together to, to achieve the goal, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, Chris, man, this has been awesome. I could probably sit here and pick your brain, you know, for another two hours, but man, um, I just thank you so much for coming down. Thank you. Making the trip and talking to us about your great book. From Lawyer to Warrior, uh, Chris, where, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, LawyerToWarrior.com. Uh, I have a page for the book. I have a Facebook page also, uh, Lawyer to Warrior. Uh, and I have a LinkedIn page, although I'm not going to give the address right now. I can, you can find we'll we'll put it in the yeah, show description if yeah. you want to see. Yeah. But uh, LawyerToWarrior.com as well as a Facebook page, Lawyer to Warrior. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, folks, uh, you know, take a literal and a figurative page out of this playbook. Um, this is really great. Thank you again so much for Thank being you. here. And Thank you. Uh, yeah, dude, we'll be in touch. And let's, I mean, you're in the area. So let's uh, let's stay in touch and maybe we'll get you back on. I'd love to. All right. Yeah. I'd awesome. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Dick Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association. 